Nisa Bulimanaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Elisha Foon. Coming up, two months on since the volcanic eruption and tsunami devastated Tonga. The agriculture sector is in peril as it struggles to cope with the impacts of the pandemic. I don't want people to die from this disease, but um, yes, we have to work, we have to make money. An exclusive interview with Palau's head of state. We understand the challenges that we have and really try to path forward where it's a win for the United States and a win for Palau. And the untold mining history of Barnaba Ocean Island. We speak to the award-winning professor, scholar and creator behind a new exhibit. The reason Barnaba was mined in the first place was for global agriculture. It's been two months since a volcanic eruption and tsunami devastated Tonga, leaving three dead and causing over 90 million US dollars in damages. The nation's Omicron outbreak has complicated recovery efforts, with the kingdom in lockdown since February 2nd. Now Tonga's agriculture industry is experiencing a severe downturn, with both exports and local sales in decline. RNZ Pacific's Final Fonua reports. It has already been a long and tough year for Tongan farmer Gimiafiaki, whose business once thrived with weekly coconut and taro exports. Today he and his workers are husking over 2,000 coconuts for a container destined for Australia. It will be the second only container of produce that he has managed to export this year. The livelihoods of commercial farmers in Tonga is at risk, and Afiaki, like many other farmers, blame Tonga's current border closure and lockdown restrictions. You know, if, if our government doesn't come up with initiatives to support us, then, you know, I have no choice but to work. You know, I'm not a government employee. I don't get wages for staying at home. I don't want people to die from this disease. But, um, yes, we have to work. We have to make money. So you've got to weigh up the risks. Look at other countries. Everyone else is starting to go out of lockdown and just, you know, we've got to live with it. Tonga's lockdown measures have only been getting harsher following the kingdom's first reported COVID deaths. On Sunday, the government enforced more restrictions, requiring all businesses to close down for one week and the public to self-isolate. Farmers have been allowed to tend their crops, but have no one to sell it to. Minoru Nishi, the owner of Tonga's largest exporting company, Nishi Trading Company Limited, says that his business used to buy produce from over 100 farmers. That's now dropped to 53. He worries about the psychological impact of the current hardships caused by lockdown restrictions on small-scale farmers, many of whom are paying off loans. So it's adding the pressure on a lot of our farmers and families at home. You know, some of some of our farmers in the agriculture sector uh, solely rely on, on their farms for their livelihoods. And when there's a lockdown like this and they can't get to the farm for harvest or maintenance of their crops, it, it really is, a, you know, a difficult situation for them. And given that they, a lot of them also have loans with the government bank and other commercial banks, it's a huge burden on families. Another unexpected challenge disrupting Tonga's local economy has been the sudden and massive arrival of food aid into the country. Containers full of bulk food sent by donors from all over the world has become stiff competition to local vendors and retail. Local retailer Lineni Dalanoa Tao says her family business has suffered since the eruption. If people don't come in, you're not going to, you know, they're not going to buy your goods and you're not going to get any money to pay your suppliers. So. You know, I used to uh, order a lot of stuff from my wholesalers, but um, I can't order stuff that I used to order um, 
previously. I don't have the money or the finances to to afford to pay off my suppliers. The last two weeks has seen an outpouring of support for Tonga's recovery. From satellite terminals donated by the world's richest man, Elon Musk, to millions of dollars in funds and material aid provided by foreign governments and agencies. Just last week, the Food and Agriculture Organization announced a $700,000 project in collaboration with the Tongan government to revive the kingdom's agriculture sector. However, neither Nishi nor Afiaki are informed of the project. Nishi says the commercial farming sector is being under-prioritized. The government's got a lot of tractors coming in from aid from China, but not everybody is going to get access to that. So that's going to be distributed to town offices and districts throughout Tonga, but whether there'll be enough to cater for the commercial sector, with the commercial, semi, semi-commercial and commercial farmers, which is a bulk of them supply a lot of the food to, to the local market and also our exports, you know, they, they, they need that kind of assistance. Resort owners whose businesses were completely destroyed have received over $2,000 in emergency funds, and businesses have received $100 reductions in their recent electricity bills. Dalanoa Tao says she's under pressure to pay off debts. You know, if the government be a bit more flexible in allowing us to make our loan payments, during this time it's uh, quite difficult, you know, trying to juggle everything and trying to um, get money to pay off everybody. <laughs> Many businesses believe more help is needed as Tongans come to grips with the pandemic two months on from the devastating tsunami and eruption. Palau's head of state believes the economic attention his country receives from its longtime partner, the United States, has diminished over time. President Sangrul Whips Jr. says his country is facing serious challenges under the existing financial support provided under the Compact of Free Association. The agreement requires the United States remain responsible for defence and external security and that it provide financial assistance for the Republic. President Whips Jr. spoke to RNZ Pacific's Calvin Anthony about what America's planned ending of some of its economic assistance from 2024 will mean for the self-governing U.S. territory. Palau has done its part. We've submitted names uh, to the U.S. government for the economic advisory group. Uh, we are awaiting the U.S. to approve uh, because it is a joint advisory group. So, But uh, regardless, I think Palau is been doing its part. I think um, what's most important, and I think the GAO report is looking at is, so how do we move forward? Allow under the trusteeship agreement, we were a trustee of the United States, uh, the obligations under that agreement was to develop Palau economically and socially and politically so they could become independent. But the reality is we are, we're a small country, small economic base. So that what we call total independence is, is not easy for us to do. And I think what we have to look at is really what are the components to make uh, this government operate and, and take care of its people in, in, in the right, right way. I think the intent of the United States, and of course, the intent of the Palau, is this relationship needs to continue. It shouldn't be severed. If anything, it needs to be strengthened. It's, uh, it's more important now than ever. The GAO is kind of just says, yeah, you know, everything is okay in Palau. But the reality is it's not. Since COVID, uh, our total debt load is now about the size of our, our GDP. We have a pension fund in debt about the size of our GDP. We have economic assistance from the U.S. and from the beginning was never adjusted for inflation. So we have serious challenges with the current economic assistance. And it's important that we review, we understand the challenges that we have and really chart a path forward where it's a win for the United States and a win for Palau. I mean, I think that's because it's, how, it's about partnership.
a former president, uh, Mr. Tommy Ramengesal Jr., recently at the online discussion on security in Micronesia. He is the fisherman's added to explain how Palau is viewed by the United States and that he mentioned that sometimes Palau is treated like fish in the net. And as the U.S.'s closest friend, Palau doesn't receive the needed attention that friends or partners should receive. And so he said that uh, the compact would need to address the basic necessities of partnership. Do you agree with this? Absolutely. What's been happening is in our relationship with the United States, we've seen that over time, the importance in terms of the attention that the United States pays on Palau seems to be diminished. But when it comes to security and defense, it's important. But when it comes to economic assistance or helping really advance society, improving people's lives, that's kind of set aside. And I think that's where we need to balance everything from education programs, health programs, and economic assistance. Those are all lumped together to make sure that we build a resilient uh, economy that's diversified, that helps us push off threats that are out there. Now, let's talk about COVID-19 pandemic and the recovery. Now, you've already mentioned that that burden from COVID is the same as the GDP. And so what is it like in Palau right now? So Palau, unfortunately, and, and, and if you look at the GAO report, it says that we have higher income levels. And because of that classification, as we're no longer a least developed country and we're higher income classification, uh, during the COVID times, what happened is Palau cannot access grants. Same thing with, uh, you know, unlike our friends from uh, the other FASs, they got grants from the World Bank for the telecom systems. They got grants to help them. And, and so what happened was in, in, in 2020, when COVID first hit, 30% of our workforce is out of work because we, you know, we depend on tourism. And when 30% of, out of your workforce is out of work, and half your your economy is, is, is not uh, operating, that means that your government doesn't have money to pay the bills. And that's why we had to go out. ADB came in with loans, which we all start paying in 2024. Ironically, that's when the compact next one comes in into place. And I think that's why it's so important that we look now at how we come up with a strategy that doesn't send Palau on a downward spiral and backwards and maybe in a more difficult situation. Is that what bouncing back from the pandemic will look like? Yeah, right now it's, 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 it, we're, we're digging a deep hole and, and, and we don't know how we're going to get out of it. And that's why it's important to have these partnerships to help us navigate uh, the best way forward. The Micronesia's withdrawal from the Pacific Island Forum. So now this has been a touchy issue from your point of view. What would be the correct outcome? I think uh, from the Micronesian standpoint, we were it was very clear. Uh, Micronesians position before the vote with amendments. It's about uh, uh, trust. One of the things that uh, we made very clear is that it's Micronesia's turn. And anything less than that is unacceptable. And so when the decision was made that we're going to vote this and we're going to, you know, use um, a majority rules to do this, I think uh, it was clear that our vision of uh, keeping the, mic, uh, the Pacific together and our, our vision of uh, uh, building consensus and working uh, in trust was broken. And that, I think that was the beginning of, of the rift. And, and we made it clear that we're not coming back to the table until, until things change. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's been a year. And um, I think um, uh, members of the PIF, some of them have, have reached out and said, we want to work with you. We want to come up with a solution that we can all work with uh, to bring the Pacific together. And I think it's important that the Pacific's together, especially on issues of climate change. 
uh, we should be one strong voice. Um, and um, uh, that's that's where I think um, uh, it's important that the Pacific Brotherhood is together. And uh, and 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 when uh, uh, the secretary, I mean, the, um, the current chair of the PIF, reached out and said, "Is there an opportunity uh, for us to give a, give us time to resolve it? Please pause." Uh, and so they asked for this pause. So that's what we're doing. This is our last uh, last attempt to resolve and, and bring everyone to the table and hopefully resolve this. Calvin Anthony speaking to Palau President Sangrul Whips Jr. A travelling multimedia installation is currently showing at Te Uru Art Gallery in West Auckland, New Zealand. Entitled Project Barnaba, the installation explores the untold mining history of Barnaba Ocean Island. Award-winning professor Dr Katerina Tewa spoke with RNZ Pacific reporter Susana Suisuiki on why she's shining a light on the devastating impacts brought on by phosphate mining on her ancestral homeland, Barnaba. Project Barnaba is a multimedia art exhibition. Um, it is built on a couple of decades of, of my research um, on the Barnaban phosphate mining history and the displacement of Barnabans from what is now Kiribati to Fiji. And it was my way of trying to disseminate my doctoral research um, more beyond the academy. So I had written a lot of words, but I'd also made films. And I'd also, um, like short films or short visual studies about, um, you know, contemporary Barnaban life or what the island in Kiribati looked like now and what Rambi Island looks like. Um, and I didn't actually have a, a, a pathway in terms of, you know, what to do with my audio, visual and performance content. So I kind of like put that on the shelf for a little bit because if you're a social scientist or if you're in the humanities, you're expected to publish books and publish journal articles um, and become an expert in producing texts. You're not, unless you're in an art school, you're not expected to make films or do art exhibitions or to do performances. But because I cross both of those fields or areas of practice, I kept looking at all my creative stuff going, you know, kind of just let it sit there um, on the shelf. So I started working with different Pacific artists to interpret my research. Mm. So I would give them my research. Um, um, like one of the first people I did that with was a Maori artist, a very well-known artist, Brett Graham, who's a sculptor. And I just sort of share my, my research and say, you know, like, how would you interpret this and how would you tell this story? And then he did and he went out and shared that and it was like, wow, okay, we can actually reach wider audiences by translating our research into the visual arts. So I, I kept kind of following that pathway and eventually um, began to collaborate with the amazing um, artist and curator Yuki Kihara, who is mm -hmm. very well known in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and Samoa as well. And she and I, like, we just had a lot of clarity around how to work together, why we were doing this and why it was important for Banabin people, but also for the contemporary arts in general. 
So it started in um, Sydney at Carriage Works, which is a large um, gallery cultural precinct there, and they funded the first exhibition. Mm. And then two years later, it went to um, MTG, um, which is a gallery in Hawke's Bay um, in, in New Zealand. It went there after that. And then um, now it's just opened at uh, Te Uru um, Gallery in Auckland. And everywhere it travels, it engages with the place and the history of the place. Mm. So it's not like random, like you just go to random <laughs> galleries or that the, there's always a significance of the communities or the places that this travels to. So Sydney is where the first prospectors who were looking for phosphate, they had an office and they set out into the Pacific hunting for phosphate. Mm. So they came, they came from an office in Sydney where they, they saw a rock and they were like, what's that rock? So I knew all of that history. So I was like, cool, it's good that we start in Sydney because this, this has meaning. Um, so why, mm. why is it important to you to bring awareness of Barnaba, especially um, its history around phosphate m- mining? Yeah, so, I mean, there's many reasons and some of them are historical and some of them are contemporary and some of them are about the future. Mm. So the reason Barnaba was mined in the first place was for global agriculture, right? So it wasn't just particular to Australia and New Zealand or even to the British Empire, Um, A lot of global agriculture, you know, which is um, has this massive impact on the lands and waterways and and on manufacturing and on transportation of food that has been a significant contributor to climate change. So global mass agriculture has very much um, speeded up this process of, of climate change. Um, and of, you know, putting carbon, more carbon dioxide into the environment. Um, And so Banaba and Nauru and other islands in French Polynesia and Palau and elsewhere all get mined for phosphate in order to fuel that engine of global agriculture. So it's a story that's particular to Banaba, to Kiribati, to Nauru, um, and to the Pacific, but it's also a global story because this extraction is all part of what causes climate change. And Barnaba was mined for 80 years. So it was like almost a century of mining by New Zealand and Australia and Great Britain. That was Susanna Suisuiki speaking to Dr. Katerina. Well, that brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Naka.